Hi, everybody. Glad to have you with us for another fascinating and inspiring hour of Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and we're about to hear from some people who simply wanted more out of life and then found ways to make it happen, and they're going to share their thoughts and insights right here. And today is really an especially interesting program because of a great lineup. From one of the biggest celebrity names out there to the heartwarming story of a woman who figured out how to find joy as her husband dealt with Alzheimer's disease. It really is an amazing love story, and she has quite a tale to tell, too. We'll talk with a man who had health challenges so severe he was told he only had a year to live three different times. Wait till you hear what he decided to do about that. And have you ever watched the show Shark Tank? Barbara Corcoran is here with some great insights that she's picked up along the way in her journey from rags to riches. And we start with an amazing, heartfelt conversation with the star of the movie Grease and the voice behind so many hits of the 70s like I Honestly Love You, Miss Olivia Newton-John. Incredible people, inspiring stories. It's time for Growing Bolder. We've got somebody now we've been reaching out to for quite a while. She's one of the most loved celebrities of our era. She's a multi-Grammy winner, Emmys, People's Choice, you name it. She starred on Broadway, and did she ever star on the silver screen, especially in Greece and in Xanadu? She has performed for the Pope and for the Queen, and she's also had to face some major challenges in life like so many of us. Her battles with stage four cancer have revealed an honesty and strength. She's become an inspiration to so many, and it's all in her new book. It's a memoir called Olivia, don't stop believing. Time now for a conversation with, you guessed it, Olivia Newton-John. Good morning, Olivia. How are you? Um, I'm great. How are you? Uh, we're fabulous. Thank you so much. And when, when we talk about don't stop believing, we all go right back to the album, which came out in 1976. The title track, you didn't write, but boy, it sure sounds like you. And it's the perfect title for a book. Uh, you know, words to live by uh, in that song. Why did you choose to write the book, and why did you decide to, to title it Don't Stop Believing"? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, start, I decided to write the book because um, I heard that they were doing a television movie about my life, and in Australia it was. And I wasn't really involved in, in making this movie, so I wasn't sure how they were going to tell it and if it would be correct. So that was kind of the inspiration. <laughs> so I thought, I'll write my version of this story and make sure it's right. And then I got into it and I was enjoying it. It was fun. And I think one of the things that really endears you to us is, man, you put your heart out there, Olivia. You're a philanthropist for environmental causes, animal rights causes. You've really been a warrior also in the fight that you have found yourself in against cancer. You established the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Wellness and Research Center. So determined to raise as much as possible, she is holding an auction of very personal items, things, Mark, like the very jacket she wore in Greece, auctioning these things off to raise more funds. Olivia, tell us about this auction. Yeah, this auction started off as a, I had this dream that one day I would auction off the jacket and pants in Greece for my cancer center, because I've had the cancer center and been fundraising for about 15 years. And that was going to be on the 40th anniversary, which was last year. And then, you know, life being as it is and the lessons it teaches us. I ended up being in my own hospital last year, and so I couldn't do it until this year. And so it evolved from just my jacket and pants to uh, clothing from Xanadu and physical and my stage touring over the years back to the 70s and awards and books and T-shirts and jewelry and furniture and photographs and artwork. <laughs> it's become like this huge thing, and I feel really wonderful about it because... Somebody's going to win these items and enjoy them, and the money is going to go to good purpose and help the hospital. And uh, so it's a win-win for everybody. Let, let's talk a little bit, if we can, uh, about your personal battle with cancer, because I know you had to spend your last birthday in the hospital as a patient at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer and Wellness Center. What sets that facility apart from the rest? What are you trying to do there? Well, what, what is special about it is we have a two things, two-pronged approach. Everything is under one roof. Usually a research institute is a separate entity. 
our research institute is within the hospital itself, so the patients and the clinicians can communicate, the doctors and clinicians can communicate with each other about personalized treatment. We also, at the Wellness Center, which is my baby, my dream, is where we support the whole person, body, mind, and spirit, so that uh, while they're going through cancer, they have access to group therapies, music, art, uh, oncological massage, and, and acupuncture, and all the things that helped me on my journey when I was going through it. So it's an everything under one roof center, and I'm very, very proud of it. How, how are you doing now, Olivia? I'm doing great. I'm really doing really well, thank you. I'm <clears throat> strong, and I just got back from Ireland where we had a showing of the grease jacket and pants and a few of my other clothing items at the um, a Star Museum outside of Dublin. And it was very exciting. It was kind of my first big trip since I was in hospital, and so it was, it was fabulous. I had a wonderful time, and I feel good. You know, it's great to hear. You know, one of the things that Mark and I were talking about right before you called was that, that the recent hit that you had, the duet with your daughter, first mother and daughter ever to be able to, to billboard with a single. I can't imagine how much that must have meant to you. Talk about the ever-increasing importance that your family plays in your life. Oh, incredible. You asked very good questions. I um, adore my daughter, and she's incredibly talented. And she came up with this idea to do um, a, a disco version of one of my songs. So we re-recorded it, and she wrote uh, new lyrics. It's Magic, the song Magic. And uh, she wrote some new verses for it. And luckily, my friend John Farrah, who wrote it, allowed her to do this. And we had a number one uh, dance record with it. about doing something else um, at some point because she's wonderful and I adore her. Folks, if you haven't figured it out, we are talking to the one and only Olivia Newton-John. And Olivia, we can hear, you know, the passion, the excitement uh, in your voice. Um, you know, we often say that, that that in a very real way, all of us are facing a, a terminal diagnosis. You know, none of us are going to get out of here alive. And yet sometimes uh, it, it takes facing a, a very real diagnosis to help us appreciate and understand the value of every minute. How has your battle affected uh, your vision of life? Well, it's a very good question. I've always been a pretty joyful person, a happy person. But as you say, we don't know whether you have cancer or you, or you have anything or, a, you know, some good fall on your head. You just don't know in life what's going to happen. So I treat every day as a gift. But when you have a, a cancer diagnosis, it makes you probably just more aware of the possibilities <laughs> that you don't think about generally. Um, so I'm very appreciative of everything and very grateful for you know, the people in my life and the friendships and the love and, and, the, and the gifts that I've been given. And um, I feel a very lucky person. You know, one of the things we, we wanted to ask you about, and I hope we're okay to say this, because in Growing Bolder, it's all about living life to the fullest as, for as long as we can. And I know you've hit the big seven O. forgive me for saying yeah. that, but when we were growing up and we first fell in love with you, Olivia, there were no women 70 years old who were as beautiful and passionate and, and full of life as you. How have you managed to go through aging, which can be devastating for many women, many people in general, and, and come out so fresh and so exciting. Oh, you're very kind. <laughs> um, I am very lucky. I have love in my life. I have a wonderful husband and children, a child, and um, I've had an amazing career. What's what's to be sad about? I mean, I'm I'm lucky to get to seventy. When you've had cancer three times, you're grateful for every year. When I hear people go, "Oh no, I'm going to be seventy," I go, "Be grateful for it. Every year is a gift. Every day is a gift. Every second, as we." Sadly, are discovering more and more every day that life is so fragile, and you have to appreciate every moment. Be in the moment too. Don't live in the past and stop projecting too far in the future. Just be here now. <laughs> That's all we got. That's all we know we have. Well, the other thing you are is an inspiration, and that perhaps of all of your accomplishments is the thing that we love you for most. Uh, for more information on how Olivia is doing, what she's been doing, and she has some fascinating views and experiences with cannabis as well through her journey, well worth learning about, make sure that you check out her website for links to everything, her book as well. That's OliviaNewtonJohn.com. Uh, thanks to one of the brightest lights out there. Thanks, Olivia, and good luck in the future. You're the one that I want.
Up next, making a giant leap. Why a 75-year-old pole vaulter credits Growing Boulder with his winning a national championship. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and you know, there are an infinite number of ways to start growing bolder, but... One of the easiest is to visualize through athletics. And one of the best examples of that is the story of our friend Joe Johnston, a 75-year-old who entered the National Senior Games to compete in pole vaulting. The Masters Pole Vault Competition is underway at the National Senior Games in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Joe Johnston is coming off a nagging injury and battling a bad case of altitude sickness. Pole vaulting isn't exactly what the doctor prescribed for his 75-year-old body. I'm proud of the fact that I was able to get get going and do something because I wasn't sure I was even going to be able to get off the ground. With little strength to spare, Johnston passes at the early heights, heights that would have guaranteed him a medal. But Johnston is unique. He doesn't care if he medals. He really doesn't care if he wins, which he does a lot but has no idea how often. How many national championships have you won? Mm, I, don't, I don't know. I, I knew that answer before. <laughs> I knew that answer before I, I asked no the question. As competitors in the 75 to 79-year-old age group miss and are eliminated, Johnston has another chance to clear a bar and win a medal, but he continues to pass. Can you pass me to the next bar? You don't want to run through? No, ma'am. With most of his competition already out, Johnston finally makes his first attempt. and then his second. Suddenly, he's in familiar territory, competing in a major championship with two misses and without a single height cleared. Just the kind of situation he seems to not only enjoy, but excel in. When his remaining competition fails to clear the new height, Johnston surprises everyone by offering to pass to the next height. When the officials won't allow it, he has three chances to win. After two close misses, he's right back where he was a moment ago, right back where he seems to excel, do or die, win or lose. With multiple passes, a handful of misses, and only two cleared bars, Joe Johnston wins another national championship. He might have been battling altitude sickness, but certainly not attitude sickness. Why do you pass to the third jump? Why do you put yourself in that position? Well, because the other guys made the bar. No sense in me making that bar. I ain't going to win if I do because I'd already missed one. See? All right, well, then let me restate that question. Okay. Why were you willing to go up to 280 and, and go up higher than you had to? And if I get up, 280 would be the same as 270. That much difference. No big deal. All right, so tell me this. You now won a national championship. No one knows how many, least of all you. How are you going to celebrate? What are you going to do? <laughs> I'm going to go see Mark Middleton uh, make a speech down at the, uh, what's the name of that thing? Chemo Theater. Chemo Theater, yes. And I've invited everybody I could see because I said, hey, you know, you got to get the attitude, man. The attitude is what it's all about. Well, let me ask you about that then. You know, how... how, how because I know what it's not your God-given talent that's responsible for this. I know it's not your amazing competitive attitude that's responsible for this. I know it's not your technique and decades doing this that's responsible for this. How much is Growing Boulder responsible for your success today? The Growing Boulder attitude is responsible for all of it. But you don't understand. I, I had some of that already. I was just glad I found somebody that's preaching it, man. It's like, yes. <laughs> I couldn't put it in words. I didn't have the words, but I, I got the... What do you say? I drank the Kool-Aid, all right, way back when. This is the national champion, Joe Johnston, Apopka, Florida. Badass number one. 
Mark, that story surprised me. That guy has so much inspiration and so much great attitude in him, it's hard not to want to hang around him. Yeah, and I love the fact that he said he's pretty much always had the growing bolder attitude. He just needed somebody to preach it, and he feels better about himself than ever. Coming up, how a wife's love for her husband helped them deal with his Alzheimer's in a very different way, one we all can learn from. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And there's a pretty good chance, folks, that at some point your parents or someone in your family is going to end up unable to take care of themselves. Could be an accident, a stroke, Alzheimer's. Do you know how many people have to suddenly put their lives aside to become caregivers for them? And there's no manual anywhere that tells you how you do it. Yeah, it's a big number, Billy. I can tell you that. And there's a woman by the name of Helene Berger, and she went through exactly that. She's a remarkable, a brilliant, a lifelong community leader. And her husband had Alzheimer's. And over the final six years of his life, her eyes were opened in a very unique and powerful way, open to Alzheimer's, open to caregiving and to understanding basic human dignity. And she's written a very compelling book about all of that and more. It's called Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope. Let's find out more as we say hello to Helene Berger. Hey, Helene, how are you? I'm fine. Good morning. And just let me tell you that I am totally delighted uh, to be on, uh, to do this interview with you. I really had not known about Growing Boulder. And uh, when I read what you're about, every word that I read, I, I identified with your philosophy so fully. So I'm happy to be with you and with an audience. And, uh, and when I read your words, hope, inspiration, and possibility. That is precisely what my book is about. So it, it's really a pleasure for me to, and attitude. And that's really what my book is about. Well, amen to that. And I got to tell you, you had us at the title of your book, Choosing Joy, because certainly Bill and I don't have the experience nor the knowledge that you do, but we have tried to the extent that we can to, to have a growing bolder voice in caregiving, in Alzheimer's, in dementia. And the one thing that we have learned is that uh, no matter how advanced someone might be uh, in a state of Alzheimer's or dementia, they still have the capacity to experience both love and joy. And so when I look at the title of your book, Choosing Joy, uh, you're talking to the caregiver themselves, right? That, that, that's a choice that they can make. Exactly. And, and, and how we change ourselves in the process. Can, can I give you a brief history? Please. Of, uh, shortly after our 50th wedding anniversary, my husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And his response to the doctor, the head of the Wien Center for Memory Disorder, was very simple, very straightforward. I don't want to live anymore. And during the first year, uh, he went down that typical Alzheimer's path, stubbornness, frustration, uh, irritability, rigidity, all, all the classic symptoms. And within a year, he was known for his radiant smile. And uh, during the following five years, he was able to do what was unthinkable before, and just quickly, on the last night of his life, we took 17 friends out for dinner to, as a thank you. And I didn't tell him who was coming because I didn't want him to feel that he needed to remember names. And he greeted after what, what turned out to be the last night of his life. He was not from Alzheimer's. He greeted every one of those friends by name, sat down, made a profound articulate toast, thanking them for their care, their phone calls, their kindness, 
and two of the couples, as they left, said the identical words, are you sure he has Alzheimer's? And the book explains why this transformation was possible for me. Wow. All right, Helene, in that, in that one answer, you've touched on a million, a million great topics there. And one of them is, man, as a caregiver, don't we seem to have the tendency to want to shut the victim away, to hide them, isolate them, keep them away from public and even their friends? You didn't do that. No. Uh, it was, that's an interesting question. I haven't been asked that before. But it was an interesting balance because I knew that he needed social activity and social contact, and yet I didn't want to tax him, and I did not want to tax my friends. And so I made short, short visits. Uh, one of the blessings for us is he loved music, and we went to many, many, many concerts. And in Miami, there are series, and so you know, he knew many of the people in the audience. And People would come over, they, they loved him, they wanted to say hello, but nobody wanted necessarily to have a long dinner. But he had so much social contact in these kinds of ways, limited, but, but he felt loved every minute from me and from his friends. And, and giving the person the dignity is, is so much a part of what it's all about. You know, Helena, I've heard it said that we can't keep them with us. We certainly can't bring them back, but we can go with them. How hard is it when your loved one has Alzheimer's to, to make that switch, to make that fundamental mind switch and, and essentially go with them every day? That's a very, very important question. And I watched in horror that first year as he continued to go downhill. And I realized during that year that I couldn't change him, but I could change myself. And an Alzheimer's patient, as we all know, asks the same question repeatedly and she gets the answer two or three minutes later. And when he did that, I realized in the beginning, my response, the first time I would answer very sweetly and nicely, and by the fourth or fifth time, I would take an intense breath or raise an eyebrow or roll my eyes or do something that implied, I've told you that a hundred times already. And I observed him closely and realized that that nonverbal communication was like a punch in the gut. And I vowed to myself, I'm not doing that to this sweet, kind, beautiful man again. It was not easy to do at all, uh, but I developed a mantra for myself that helped. And my mantra was, if he remembered, he wouldn't be asking. How can I be upset and frustrated with a, with a man who cannot remember that? And as I said, it was very difficult to do, but it became so easy because the difference in his reaction, instead of hurt and, and losing his dignity and his respect, the difference in his reaction was so, so wonderful. And so in many ways, I learned how to change myself. This is so great because, in essence, what happened is the light switch went on for you, and in turn, you helped him keep the light switch on as long as he could. You made him start playing piano. You, you had him do Sudoku. You had him do artwork. And these are, these are things that people would say, isn't this just pointless? But you were determined that he keep as much of his dignity, as much of his personality and himself as you could. It's interesting because in, in those examples you just gave, some of them were old, uh, old, old talents that he had that we, I brought him back to, and some were new, and some he came up with himself. Like I remember one night after dinner, I had brand new beautiful pad and crayons and markers, and I placed them in front of him after dinner, and I said, draw something. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Draw, he never drew in his life. And I, he said, what should I draw? I said, whatever makes you happy. And that was the beginning of almost nightly drawings, not, <laughs> not museum quality by a long shot, but all full of joy. Every one of them. You couldn't draw the kind of things in the cover of the book that has one of his drawings. You couldn't draw what he did. Uh, if you were a depressed person. So that's it. Be, keeping an active mind 
is so key. And most people sit, park somebody in front of a television set or do anything, but he, he had meaningful activity every minute of the day. He was never a moment when he wasn't programmed to do something wonderful. You know, you know what you've done here is you've created so much more than you know. People pick up the book; they think it's an Alzheimer's story or maybe a a caregiver's guide. But what you have touched on is really a book about what love is about, and respect, and dignity, and what a spouse's role is in a relationship. So, can you sum it up? Can you kind of combine all of these lessons into a message? What what can we learn about life? and love from what you've been through. Our actions can and do make a difference, and we really can choose to live with hope and joy. And the book is just chock full of different paths. Some may work for you, some may not, but it, is, it affects all people. It affects all people and how we live our lives. And interesting too, Helene, is that the things that you go over in your book they apply to any challenge that a couple faces in life. It's it's kind of how we judge ourselves, how we live. It's concepts like the importance of acceptance, how to give your best without losing yourself in the process, learning to negotiate, changing your mindset from frustration to appreciation, and keeping each other mentally engaged. It, it's, a, it's a very important book. It's called Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope. And folks, you can learn more at Helene, that's H-E-L-E-N-E, Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R dot com. And our guest has been the very, very interesting Helene Berger. Thanks so much, Helene. She made the move from struggling food server to multi-millionaire business tycoon. Shark Tank star Barbara Corcoran tells us how she did it next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble to neglect. You're listening to Growing Boulder. You know, we talk all the time about how it's never too late and how it's really all about attitude, about how you can write your own life story. And our next guest really has an amazing story to tell. One of those that's so inspiring, you're going to think that if she can make it big, why the heck can't I? Yeah, I'm a big fan. Uh, You've seen her. uh, You know her as a real estate expert on the Today Show. She writes columns for the Daily News and Red Book. She's a best-selling author. And, of course, one of the judges on the Emmy-winning reality program Shark Tank. She's a motivational and inspirational speaker with a little side of outrageous. Let's say hello to Barbara Corcoran. Barbara, how are you? Really nice to be with you guys today. Well, we appreciate it, and I know we've got a great episode of Shark Tank coming up. Tell us, what is it about this one coming up that makes it one of the most unusual and maybe even one of the most explosive episodes ever? Well, it's the first time ever that the women are in charge. You know, always it's either Lori or I, or Lori and I on the panel, so the men rule. But in this particular episode, I walked on that set, and lo and behold, were three women, including me, and the men were in the minority. So Kevin and Mark, who are formidable, as I'm sure you know, uh, were in the minority. And boy, what a difference that made. I realized it was the first time in my life where I actually got to feel like a guy in business, because men always walk into any powerful situation in business and are always in the majority by a lot. But this is the first time ever the women were a majority. It was like, wow, this feels easy. (laughs) (laughs) And Barbara... It's awesome that on Shark Tank, the spotlight always seems to go to you. And here you are, closing in on 70 years old, and you're a national celebrity who's got energy, looks, attitude, power. It looks like age is just making you stronger. Do you feel that way? Well, I'll tell you what I I really feel. I'm really resentful you even mentioned my age. Now, why did you go and do that? You let the cat out of the bag. I like to push myself off as a 40-year-old whenever I can, and now you just outed me like that. Here's so, here's why. 
phone call right now. Here's why, 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 why? Here's why, Barbara, <laughs> because on Growing Bolder, we believe that, that everybody should be proud of their age. Don't run for it. And it's because, it's because of people like you that give hope and inspiration to people 40 and above that the best of your life can still be yet to come. Oh, my. Uh, I mean, that is true. I think the best of your life is whatever portion of your life you're doing what you want to be doing and doing the most of it. And I've just always, since the time I was 20, I was afraid of dying. I'm going to die soon. I don't have much time left. I don't have much time left. And I'm still running scared away from death. But I guess other than the neuroses that that develops into, which is not a healthy thing, I'm sure, for me, what's great about it is I pack a lot in. I think when I'm, when I'm finally uh, put down, somebody ought to say she got $10 out of every dollar because I feel like I've squeezed that much in. But I don't have any regrets. And you know what? The, the few friends or associates, not really friends because it's too depressing, but the few associates I know who have regrets uh, get sadder as they get older. I get happier as I get old because I've gotten more stuff in, you know, that I've really, really enjoyed and gotten satisfaction out of. Boy, don't you love her, her attitude? We're speaking with Barbara Corcoran, who, for my money, uh, is the all-time number one top real estate investor in New York City. She trumps anybody else from New York City. Uh, we love what she does. Uh, you, you know, Barbara, you mentioned all the that you run so fast. One of nine kids, you didn't necessarily excel in school. You took a job as a hot dog vendor. And in fact, I've read that you had 20 jobs by the time you were 23. What was your plan? What were you looking for? You know what? I was looking for an escape from school. I was a dumb kid in school that the kids made fun of when I had to read out loud. For me, it was where I learned shame. No child ever wants to feel shameful. And so for me, I was running hard to find some of the venue where I could not be the loser in the situation. And when I got in any job that I did, every part-time job since the time I was 11, I, I always had tons of jobs. Um, I enjoyed every one of them because it was the kind of performance that I could do well. I could be on my feet. I was a nice kid. I was friendly and I was polite and people responded well to that. It's pretty basic values that I was taught at home. And the other thing is my mother really never uh, made me worry about the school. Of course, I was sick with worry while in the school, but once I came home, she told me I was a genius and I believed her. For some reason, I believed her. So I just went out and showed people how terrific I was outside of school. And, And think of the experience in education I had by the time I was 23 and started my firm. People said, you're so young. And I was managing 50 people by the time I was 25. And people said, you're so young. But I wasn't young inside. I had worked, I had already been in the workforce for a dozen years, every kind of job in the world. And I learned things as you always do on different jobs. So I knew how to hustle and I knew how to make a buck. And that was enormously helpful when I started my business. I was really already an old person going into business at 23. So Barbara, (laughs) the energy of of a young person. It seems that when we're young and ambitious, you know, things don't bother us so much. But the toughest thing about business and the toughest thing about life is dealing with those ball bat to the head moments that always pop up, overcoming that hopeless feeling we all get when we least expect it. So here we are at this age. We all have health challenges. You had one with cancer. How do we move forward from the times where it looks dark outside? Well, for me, um, I just know it's better right around the corner because it always is in any of the dismayed portions of life, hardships, disappointments, people disappointing you, business disappointing you, recessions hitting you across the head, not being able to pay your bills, the kind of stuff that makes up life. Uh, for, For me, I've really learned that if I have something really hard that hits, that there's a bounce up from that, kind of like throwing a ball onto the wall, boom. Yeah, but it bounces back, and I've I've been very alert to what the opportunity is coming back up. And you know, with my eyes open, like I know there's something here that's going to happen that's good. I have always had my best successes on the rebound, even Shark Tank, which hired me to be on this show. I told everybody I'm going to Hollywood. I bought a new luggage set to look fancy. I was going to sign autographs, and I was slightly in the TV business, but not like I was in, with Shark Tank. Uh, even when they told me they changed their mind, hired another woman, it was like, oh, here we go again, the usual thing, you know, slap you in the head, sorry, you're out. Uh, But I came back, because I always come back, and I wrote a great pointed email, short to the point on why they're making a big mistake, and they should let both women compete for the seat, and I won the seat. 
But I, I am very good at bouncing back up because I have learned through experience. If you bounce back up, there's always something there good waiting for you. I almost feel like there's a cry in the universe that here's your battle cry. You know, she's trying. Let's give her a hand. You know, that kind of thing. But it, I've never not gotten a great opportunity after a downfall. The bigger the downfall, the bigger the opportunity. So I've learned to expect it. I have that kind of blind faith that I just have to stay alert and see what it is, grab it when I see it, you know? What's the moral of the Barbara Corcoran story? What can we learn about life from what you've been through and what you represent? Uh, I guess, I know it sounds trite, but I guess anybody could make something of themselves. I had a huge advantage of two parents who loved me. Believe me, I'm appreciative of what kind of advantage that was, or I don't know where I'd be, right? But assuming you even have one person to love you to build your confidence in or love of yourself, you could really dream. If you can dream, like, like I never did a business plan, but I had such a clear image that I wanted to be the queen of New York real estate. It was in living color. It was in my head every day. And that's what motivated me. I saw who I wanted to be. And I saw it and kept it clear. And I did everything in my power to reach it. And I think, uh, you know, dreaming sounds foofy, like, yeah, I'm doing drugs. I'm dreaming a lot. I don't mean that. I really believe that this business plan left brain approach to making something of yourself, make a life plan, I don't think works for most people who are creative. I think you have to have an image of who you want to be when you grow up and just keep striving to make that dream come true. It's a, it's a much more solid, for most of us, way of uh, reaching for success. For me, it's been essential that I always had a picture. In fact, the reason I got on Shark Tank is because I saw myself on Shark Tank. And when I got that email saying they had changed their mind, I thought to myself, how could that be? Everything I dream of comes true. I know it comes true. But it was my belief in my own dream that made me stand up and be counted that got me on Shark Tank. So it goes round and round and round. Yeah, I think visualization is powerful in, in growing up to be who you want to be. Thank you so much, Barbara. We are so glad to have had the chance to, to hear your story. I mean, you're inspirational. You're motivating. You make us all feel like, that's right. You know, let's root for her because rooting for her it's like rooting for us. We all can write our own life story if we just take the time, think about it, and believe in it. That's Shark Tank's Barbara Corcoran. A few minutes like her, man, it makes you feel like you can do anything. Thanks, Barbara. Up next, how would you deal with being told you only had a year to live? Well, we're about to meet someone who has faced that threat for his entire life. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health. Introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. You are listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. Ever face a serious health scare? Chances are each one of us will have to face several serious health scares, and they happen in an instant that seem to come out of the blue, and in many cases, they're life-altering. They're turning points for a lot of people and couples and families as well. So what do you do when it happens? How do you deal with them? How do you move forward? Well, you're about to hear from someone who may have gone through more than anybody else. Yeah, it really is remarkable. This guy's been in a battle for his life literally since the day he was born. He had open heart surgery at five and again a year later, and that made him the first person ever to survive two open heart surgeries. But then at 17, he had a heart attack so severe that it nearly killed him. In his 30s, his heart flat out quit, and he had to have two transplants. Uh, that he is still alive today at the age of 66 is nothing short of stunning. He's written a book about it. It's called Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart. So let's say hi to the amazing Stephen G. Taibbi. Hey, Stephen, how are you? 
Good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's amazing that you say you're fine. And, and I have to admit, I think in equal parts, I am sorry for you, I am inspired by you, and I am grateful for you because your book really is amazing. And, and just to be clear, so people don't get the wrong idea, the book is not about your medical issues as much as it is about how not to be defined by an ailment, a disease, or a diagnosis. Can you explain a little bit more uh, about that and your motivation to, to send that message? Yeah, my motivation to write this book was because I realized that I had uh, strategies and ways of dealing with things that I thought would be helpful for other people in case they were found themselves in kind of the same positions. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what the illness is. It matters is, um, is your mental attitude towards it. And that's um, pretty much my message, that your mental attitude and your your decision on what strategies to use can make or break um, a life or death situation. And you know, the fact that you have a great attitude, it really is, is amazing. You and your parents, just so people have some perspective on this, they were told when you were five that you wouldn't live to 10, that when you were 12, you wouldn't live to 20, and that you'd never see 30 when you were in your 20s. It's great that you proved them all wrong, but what did that do to you to have death hanging over your head your whole life? It made me fight. It made me make a decision. And the decision was, oh, yeah, watch this. <laughs> and that's really the truth. I, I decided that none of that was going to happen to me. I decided that I was going to fight. And here I am. And Stephen, given that it did happen to you and given that it all began when you were very, very young, one would have to believe that your parents were instrumental in this attitude that you have in, in helping you develop these strategies to cope and, and, and move forward. Uh, uh, is that true? Were your parents instrumental in, in who you are? They were instrumental, yeah, because um, the, the big thing they were instrumental of it was when I got sick the first time. And uh, I was first person to live through two open hearts for ASD repair. That's um, the distinction there. ASD is atrial septum defect. They used to call it a hole in the heart. But my parents wouldn't allow me to feel that I was sick. My parents never allowed me to think that way. They made me go out and play. I had to do my chores. All the things a normal kid had to do, my parents refused to mollycolly me and instead made, treated my, me like a regular kid. And I took that concept and expanded on it as I got older enough to, to understand such things. By the time I was seven or eight years old, based on that strategy my parents had, I was building on strategies of my own to take me further along that line of thinking. Boy, Stephen, I know people that talk to you uh, always ask you about how did you deal and how did you cope, but I cannot even imagine what your parents went through. What? How tough is it to be a caregiver for somebody going through something like this, and, and what did you learn about that world? Well, my mother my mother was, you know, she was, a, it, she was I call her, she, mama bear. She was, she was definitely, you know, battling for me when I was young. But I'd also like to say that my wife, Rose, has walked through fire with me twice with two heart transplants. She's just been in the same boat, you know. Actually, I think these were harder to deal with, especially in my last transplant. You know, it really is remarkable, folks. We're talking with Stephen G. Taibbi, who, is, uh, who has written uh, a great book. It's called Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart. And, and, and Stephen, you know, we wouldn't wish upon anyone what you have been through. So if we can for a moment, let's take it out of a health kind of a scare, if you will, and apply some of these strategies in general. You know, what have you learned that you can share with the rest of us about overcoming the challenges of life? Because, you know, the one thing Bill and I have learned doing what we do is as we age, it is a given that we will all face challenges, not many as, as serious as you have, but, but what, what can you do to help us get through our challenges? I think the most important lesson is that you have to live in an attitude of gratitude. If you have gratitude, I don't care how sick you are, you have to have gratitude even for the illness because it says that you have to be grateful in all things. It's easy to be grateful for things that are good. I mean, it doesn't take anything there. But if you're grateful in all things, including the bad that's happening to you, it pushes out all the room for fear and anxiety and all the negative things that can affect your health in a, in a negative way. So if you live yourself, live your life in an attitude of gratitude on the 50-50 line of life and death, not 49-51, 
but 50-50. You're ready to go. You're ready to live. Every day of your life, whether you're sick or not, an attitude of gratitude is like having a nuclear battery in you. It gives you all sorts of power, and, and you make decisions based on your gratitude. And once you have an attitude of gratitude, humor comes easily, and that is one of the great weapons in fighting illness. And it inspires the people around you as well. Stephen, you, you've been through so much. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to even exaggerate all that you've gone through. Tell us a little bit about how are you now? Uh, you're in your mid-60s. I guess you're getting to an age where, you know, who, who, how are you doing? I'm okay. Um, the last operation, the last transplant was a little rough. I now have um, a couple of things from having thrown blood clots and things like that um, that I have to deal with. My breathing could be better. But I'm okay, you know. I'm out every day. I drive. I I annoy my wife. I do all the good things, and um, you know, I'm I'm alive and I'm happy and I'm I'm grateful. And do you feel, you know, I, I, this is a strange question I'll give you, but but maybe in lucky in the sense because as we all age, you know, I I think we fear our mortality. And I love what you just said about this fifty fifty line of life and death. And uh, it sounds like you've come to the point where you know how to live, but you're ready to die. I mean, is that true? And what's it feel like to be there? That is true, and that is the most freeing feeling on earth. Once you totally embrace your death, and I became aware of my mortality when they gave me last rites when I was six. Nobody told me that I was in mortal danger, but, you know, here you are giving a Catholic Italian last rites. I could figure it out. And, um, you know, and I expanded on it from there, but on my first transplant, I really reached that thing where I embraced my death and... And and I took and I started walking that fifty fifty line, and I was living in gratitude. That all happened. That really happened on my on my first transplant when I was um, forty six, and that living like that has really, like I say, it frees you up. You know, you're not afraid of anything anymore. If you could embrace your death, if you understand that no matter what you do, one day life is going to kill you, well, then you're free to do anything, aren't you? I mean. You know, most people are afraid to take risks. I'm afraid not to take risks. And it's because I live that kind of a life with that kind of an attitude. And I would like to have everybody live that kind of life because it means you're living a full and happy life. You know, there's so many people out there that are living with terminal illnesses or are profoundly sick. And I know this book would be amazing for them. Actually, there are life lessons in there for anybody, no matter what your health is. So, But if you do have one foot into that world, isn't one of the things that happens is, oh, your friends, eh, they don't call you as much anymore. And people kind of stay away and, and your world starts to shrink and you become more and more isolated. How do, how do we change that? Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Being being that ill will teach you who your friends are for sure. And depending on how ill you are, you're just going to have to um, try to be as active as you can with your friends, even if it just means you call them and make sure they understand that you need them to call you and that you're still here. Because people get afraid. You know, you remind them of, of their own death. Um, and, and that's, I think, why they shrink away from us. It's like making a gravy on the stove, you know, in, in, the, in the beginning with all your friends, it's very watery. But as it, as it starts to cook down and all these fake friends leave, the gravy that you left is very rich. And the, even if you've only got one or two friends, they're the friends that are the ones who count. Wow. Hmm. So, so Bill mentioned you're 66. Uh, what are your thoughts about the future? Do you think about the future, or are, are you so anchored in the now that you really don't need to? Are, are you optimistic? Are you worried? Oh, I'm, 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 I'm always thinking about the future. I mean, that's why I wrote the book, and that's why I'm as active as I am right now, because I want to have as rich a future as I can, and I want to be that all the way up until I don't have a future anymore, which, of course, we're all going to face. I don't see myself sitting in a rocking chair waiting to die. I see myself being active until I die. That's what all of this is about for me, writing the book, um, doing other things associated with the book, um, speaking and all that. I still want to have a full life. I've always had a full life. You know, Steve, it's amazing that you're as uplifting and inspiring as you are, and that makes you a gift to the rest of us. So before we let you go... 
man, from the seat that you've had in life, you've had such a unique perspective, different from most of us. What, what can we learn? What is the main overarching message that we can all learn from what you've been through, what you've discovered? The, the two things I've already mentioned, that you walk the 50-50 line of life and death because you embraced your death. And you live your life in an attitude of gratitude. I don't care what your what your situation is. There's always something to be grateful for, always. And uh, and make sure your decisions are based on living in that attitude. We may never get a more powerful message than that. The book is called Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart. Fascinating story with so many important life lessons and insights. We are grateful to Stephen G. Taibbi for opening your life and struggles up for the rest of us to learn from. And folks, you can find more information at gratefulguilt.com. Stephen, thanks for the inspiration and good health to all of us. Well, that's it for now, but Growing Boulder always continues on. Be sure to check out growingbolder.com for inspiring videos and motivational interviews. It's also where you can subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine. Get a copy of Mark's groundbreaking book, Growing Boulder, Defy the Cult of Youth, and check out our very cool t-shirts. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook, too, where you'll find uplifting and inspiring posts and memes that you can share with your family and friends and comment on as well. And how about a quick takeaway before we go? What do you think better increases your odds of success, hoping you'll succeed or actually expecting to succeed. Your state of mind can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, a little bit of confidence goes a long, long way. Of course, it's important to do your homework and take only calculated risk, but you've also got to believe in yourself. Confidence can be just what it takes to push you over the top, and that is what we call growing bolder. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulder's studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Said I